U.S. Navy History, arriving. Welcome to the U.S. Navy History Podcast. I am Dale, and my XO is Steven. Hey, Steven, how are you? Hey, I'm doing pretty good. Thanks for asking. Well, you're more than welcome. So, we're coming back to the Eastern Theater of the American Civil War. That's what it is. <laughs> you forgot what conflict we're covering? Yep, for a second there. <laughs> Even though I'm looking right at the CSS Abel Myrell, which is what we're going to be talking about here soon. I mean, what what do you think CSS stood for? Chinese sailing ship? Catalanian sailing ship? Maybe. Or, you know, Charlie's sailing ship. Oh, yeah. No, Char Charlie was a, a big player in naval powers. So, we're in the Eastern Theater of the American Civil War in the North Carolina coast area. So we have three more battles to go over, and we're going to talk about the CSS Abel Merrill. And then from there, we're going to go to the valley. So are you ready to get underway, my friend? Let's cast off. All right. So first up, the CSS Abel Merrill. This was a steam-powered ironclad ramp on the Confederate Navy side. So when you say ram, did they even bother putting a cannon on this thing? Well, I'm going to go over all the armaments and everything like that. Okay. So she was named for a town and a sound in North Carolina. So she was ordered in April 16th of 1862. She was laid down in January of 1863 and commissioned in April 17th of 1864. She displaced 376 tons. Her length was 158 feet. Her beam was 35.4 feet, and her draft was 9 feet. As stated before, she was steam-powered. Her speed was 4 knots, and she had a crew complement of 150 officers and men. Now, here we come to the armament. Two 6.4 Brook double-banded rifles. 6.4 inches, centimeters, millimeters? Oh, they're, they're cannons. Okay, okay. They're rifled, muzzle-loading, naval, and coast defense guns. So she got some of the new toys, but four knots, that is not fast. No, it is not, not at all. So, let's get into her construction. So, on April 16th, 1862, the Confederate Naval Department, they were very, very excited about what they thought as offensive potential of armored rams because of the victory of the CSS Virginia over, you know, wooden hold Union ships in uh, Virginia. Yep, yep. Steel has a tendency to beat wood. Yeah. So they signed a contract with a 19-year-old Confederate lieutenant named Gilbert Elliott. He was to oversee the construction of, you know, smaller but powerful gunboats to destroy the Union warships in the North Carolina Sounds. 
So the terms of agreement gave him the freedom to select a appropriate, if you want to use that term, place to build the ram. He established a primitive shipyard with the help of a plantation owner named Peter Smith in a cornfield on the Roanoke River. This is near modern Scotland Neck, North Carolina. Now, Smith was made the superintendent. Now, the reason that they chose that place was because the water there was too shallow for the Union gumbos to get there. So they didn't have to worry about the Union coming up there and blowing away their hard work before, you know, they were able to put it out in the water. Pretty much they got to finish playing with their toy before uh, the Union would show up and smash it to bits. They had to finish building it. Well, yes. Uh, it's like a Lego <laughs> kit, you know. You, you want to finish building your Lego kit before your bully smashes it. Yes. So, Elliot made his blueprints. And the Confederate Navy's chief contractor, guy named John L. Porter, he finalized the designs. He gave them the two thumbs up. This gave the ram a armored casement with eight sloping 30-degree angle sides. And within the boat were two 6.4-inch Brook pivot rifles, one forward and one aft, each of them capable of firing from three different fixed positions. Both of these cannons were protected on all sides behind six exterior-mounted heavy iron shutters, and the boat was propelled by twin three-bladed screw propellers powered by two steam engines, and they were 200 horsepowers, and built, actually, by Elliot. So this warship was powered by an engine that was less powerful than many sedans nowadays. Oh, yeah. Wow. Hence, four knots. <laughs> I suppose. <laughs> so they began construction January 1860, and it continued you know, for quite a long while, into the next year. Now, word of this gunboat reached the Union naval officers stationed in the area, and this kind of alarmed them. They went to the War Department and asked for an overland expedition to destroy the ship but the uh, union army they were like we really can't spare the troops so you know that's it's not gonna happen and of course you know that decision is pretty short-sighted she does a lot of damage before she goes away yeah so a little bit more about these cannons each of these Double-banded cannons weighed more than 12,000 pounds. You know, I'm beginning to see a reason why this thing can only go four knots. <laughs> Both of them were positioned along the ironclad center line in the armored casement, one forward and one aft. The field of fire was about 180 degrees from port to starboard. And each one could fire from one of three gun port positions and could deliver a two-cannon broadside. So when you say three fixed positions, do you mean like elevation positions or 
like it was on a rail that could it could adjust where it was along the length of the boat a bit. Yeah, imagine so there's one forward, one aft. Right. That would have three shutters that you could take cannon out of one, move it over, put it in the second one, or all the way to the port side if you were started on the starboard side and put it out that window. Okay. So the projectiles that she carried had she had explosive shells, anti-personnel canister shot. She had grape shot and blunt-nosed solid wrought iron bolts for use against the Union armored ships. So while she's slow, she was very dangerous. Oh, yes. She had a lot of different projectiles she could use. So she was commissioned in April 1864 as the CSS Abel Merrill. And she was given to Captain James W. Cook, and then got underway downriver towards Plymouth. Her mission was to clear the river of all Union vessels so that General Robert F. Hoke could take his troops and storm the forts located at Plymouth. So she anchors about three miles north of the town, and then the pilot, John Locke, he takes two seamen in a small boat and takes soundings of the river. They saw that the river was actually high at this point in time and discovered that there were 10 feet of water over the obstructions. So the captain says, Onward, boys, we can sail over that easy. And of course, their armor protected them from the Union guns at the forts over there at Warren's Neck and Boyle's Mill. So, in response, the North sends the USS Miami and the USS Southfield. These are two paddle steamers. They are lashed together with spars and chains, and they're approaching from upriver. They're trying to pass on either side of the Abel Merrill, trying to trap her in between them. So, Captain Cook, he orders heavy starboard. And it comes very, very close to the southern shore. But he did get outboard of the south field. Then he orders hard to port and rams the south field. And that goes about as well as it usually does. Yeah, the south field starts to sink. And Abel Merrill's ram is actually now trapped in the south field's hull because of how hard she hit him. Oof. So her bow starts to go under as well. Now, as both ships are now sinking, the south field actually starts capsizing. And she actually capsized in the correct way to free the ironclad and allowed the ironclad to refloat herself. Now, the USS Miami fired a shell into Abel Merrill at point-blank range. You know, while her and the Southfield were in their death throes. Mm-hmm. But I'm sure you can guess what happened with that shot. It did not go well for the paddle boat. It actually rebounded off of Abram Merrill's iron sides mm-hmm. and exploded on the... Ooh, okay, yeah, that, that went even worse than I was expecting. Yeah, it killed her CO, 
the Miami's crew, they did not give up yet, though. They attempted to board the Abel Merrill to capture her, but they were driven back by heavy musket fire. So after this boarding attempt was repulsed, the Miami was like, yeah, we're done. And attempted to steer clear of the Abel Merrill and made her escape. So the Abel Merrill has successfully cleared the river of Union ships. So they now attack Plymouth and take Plymouth and all the nearby forts. So on May 5th, the Abel Merrill and the CSS bombshell were escorting the CSS cotton plant, which was a troop ship down the Roanoke River. And they encounter four Union warships. The Miami's back, and now supported by the USS Matabets, the USS Sassacus, and the USS Wyalusig. Wyalusing? I don't know why they had to be so difficult with the names, but <laughs> there you are. Well, uh, they must have figured if we can't pronounce them, that means the enemy can't pronounce them, which means it's harder for them to track you know, the movement of our vessels. Yeah, maybe. Now I must ask, any of those ironclads? Because if not, this is going to go very well for the CSS ship. No, no, and no. They were all steam-powered, but no, they are not ironclads. Now, they did have more than 60 cannons between them. But unless their cannons designed to pierce iron it'll dent the hull might give uh, some of the crew a, a ringing noise in their ears well let's find out shall we let's find out okay so abel merrill opens fire first and immediately wounds six men working on Mata Bessett's two 100 pound parrot rifles and then attempts to ram her but she manages to get around the Southern's ironclad before contact was made. Then Sussicus comes by very quickly and fires a broadside of solid 9-inch and 100-pound shot, all of which bounces off the Abel Merrill. But fortunately, as they bounced off of Abel Merrill's armor, they hit Bombshell, who is a softer target, and holes the boat, which means that she gave up pretty quickly and was captured by the Union. So the commander of the Sassacus, Lieutenant Commander Francis Asbury Rowe, his name is much easier to pronounce than his boat's name, <laughs> seeing Abel Merrill about 400 yards off of their beam, decides, I'm going to ram them. And they did. They struck the ironclad full on and square on, right on the broadside. Now, they shattered the timbers on her own bow and twisting off the bronze armor that they had. And now both boats are one boat so the able marines gun crew quickly fired two point blank 
shells at them. One of them punctured the Sassacus's boilers. And that's pretty much the end of that ship. Well, it broke them free, and now the boat is full of steam and drifting. With a faulty engine. Yeah, well, yeah, the, yeah she's drifting. She's D.I.W. So Miami takes out a spar torpedo and a CI net. They were going to try to use the net to tangle the screw propellers on the uh, Abel Merrill, but the spark torpedo and the net both failed. So the battle goes on, and more than 500 shells are fired at the Abel Merrill during this entire engagement. Now, she did have some damage to her smokestack, and there was damage to other areas, but she pretty much didn't even limp away. She just happily steamed back up the Roanoke River <laughs> as the victor and moored at Plymouth. She's like, yay, I win. Woo, 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 woo. That was a fun little scrap. Let's do it again sometime. Yeah. So throughout the entire summer of 1864, Abel Merrill, she is dominant on the Roanoke. And by autumn, the U.S. government decided that we need to study this and see what we can do about this, because this is just complete BS. So the Navy considers a number of different ways to try to destroy the Abel Merrill. The one that they decide to go with was submitted by Lieutenant William B. Cushing. They authorized him to locate two small steam launches that they were going to fit with spar torpedoes. So Cushing goes out and looks and looks and looks and finds two 30-foot picket boats that were under construction in New York. And he said, those are now mine. Thank you very much. <laughs> On each of these, he mounted a Dahlgren 12-pound howitzer and a 14-foot spar projecting into the water from its bow. Now, unfortunately, one of them was lost on the voyage from New York to Norfolk. But the other one got there just fine, and they went to the mouth of the Roanoke. Once there, they put the torpedo onto the spar. This was a lanyard-detonated torpedo. So the evening of October 27th, Cushing and his men began working their way upriver. They had a small cutter with them. Their task was to prevent interference by Confederate sentries stationed on a schooner that was anchored near the wreck of the Southfield. They made it pass undetected. So Cushing was like, ooh, look what we just did. You know what? Maybe we should just capture it instead. <laughs> Wouldn't that be nice? Because nobody knows we're here. We have the element of surprise. But that changed quickly. Because as they approached the docks, they were spotted. So close. Yeah, they came under heavy rifle and pistol fire from both the shore and the Abel Merrill. As they closed on the Abel Merrill, they found that she had a defense that they did not know about. And... This was floating log booms. What's that? That is just like 
Nowadays, we would use floaters to surround a ship to keep like uh, other boat, small boats from approaching. And nowadays, we would have nets going all the way down to the bottom right. to keep uh, divers from getting in there as well. So this is just a early version of that, just with logs. Oh, okay. Now, these logs, though, had been in use for a very long time. And so they were very, very slimy. Because I don't know if you've ever seen wood and water for a very long time. They get slimy. Oh, yeah. They, they, they get very slick with algae. Mm-hmm. So the uh, launch just goes right over them. The slime helped them. <laughs> so they rammed that spar right into the ironclad's hull. And then Cushing stands up on the bow pulls the lanyard, and detonates the torpedo. I'd like to imagine he probably said something, you know, action hero-y, but there's no record. Uh, I believe uh, Yippee-ki-yay, you confederate jerks, is in the running. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, that's a good one. Now, the explosion? Yeah. This threw Cushing and all of his men overboard into the water. Cushing then goes, I'm heavy. I'm going to strip off all my clothes and swim to shore. And then he hides until daylight. He fortunately avoids all the Confederate search parties that were put together to find those people that did that to their boat. <laughs> so about early afternoon, he is able to steal a small skiff and begin slowly paddling using his own hands as oars. And he just goes stroke, stroke, <laughs> stroke down river to rejoin his fellows at the river's mouth. So when he finally gets back, he is hailed as a national hero of the union because of his daring exploits of the rest of his men. One other one did escape. Two were drowned and the rest were captured. So even though they failed, the fact that they tried. Oh, they didn't fail. Well, what, what was... They blew a hole in the Abel Marie's hull at the waterline. Oh. Big enough to drive a wagon into. Oh, that's not a failure. I, You just said an explosion, everyone was thrown off. It's like, okay, this couldn't have gone well. No, that sounds like it went pretty well. I, I take back my statement. Yeah, I was building up suspense, and it seemed like it worked. Yes, you fooled me. <laughs> she sank immediately in six feet of water below her keel, settling into a lot of mud. Now, I mean, her top deck was pretty much dry, but, you know, she's down. They later salvaged both of her rifled cannons and shells and used them to defend Plymouth against a Union attack. But it turned out that it was a futile effort. So the United States Navy raised her later and patched her hull. They had the USS Ceres tow Abel Merrill to Norfolk's Navy Yard and she arrived there April 27th of 1865. Orders were then issued to repair her hull, and she entered dry dock. A couple months later, 
she was done. And then two weeks after that, she was judged, condemned by a Washington, D.C. prize court. So after she was put into the Navy, she actually didn't see any service time at all. She just remained there at Norfolk. And she stayed there until being sold at public auction two years later. More than likely, she was scrapped after that because we have no records of anything that she did after that at all. One of her rifled cannons was on display at the headquarters of the Commander-in-Chief of the U.S. Atlantic Command, and her smokestack is on display at the Museum of Abel Merrill in Elizabeth City, North Carolina. Oh, so the ship got its entire own museum after the war. Yeah. Oh, we do have the prize court adjudication. You want to hear that? Let's hear it. Okay. So, the date is blank. Ship type was Ram. Prize name, Abel Merrill. Gross proceeds... $79,944. I, I know you what you want to. Go ahead. I'll wait. Give me a moment to get it up. Mm-mm. Uh, the coffee I just had, I'm chewing on the grounds a bit. That's the way you know it's good coffee. <laughs> Let me just break up the uh, abacus. All right. Hit me with that number again. $79,440. So, in 2023 monies... That works out to one million four hundred and fifty-two thousand dollars and thirty-nine cents. Now her costs and expenses, probably to get her there, was two thousand six hundred and forty-five dollars and thirty centos. Two sixty-five, you said. Two thousand six hundred and forty-five and thirty cents. Forty-eight k three hundred sixty-five and nineteen cents. So forty-eight thousand dollars to raise the boat up and tow her. And fix her, probably. And then, so that meant that the amount for distribution was $77,298.70. She was adjudicated in Washington. And the vessel's entitled to share was listed as Lieutenant Commander Cushing and Party. So yes, he got, and his crew got the portion of $77,298.70. Now, if you like, you can go to the Porto Plymouth Museum in Plymouth and see a 3 8 scale replica of this ironclad. It is about 63 feet long, and it's been there since April of 2002. This replica is self-powered and capable of sailing on the river. Hmm. So is it remote controlled, or...? I don't know. Okay. I mean, 3 8 scale, you'd have to have a... A very, very short crew. I mean, this is pretty big. I mean, it's 63 feet long. But, uh, yeah, I don't know what it's powered by. The skiff that they used was powered by outboard motors, so I don't think that's historically accurate. <laughs> <laughs> More than likely, it's powered by modern boat motor. You could probably get a few people in that hull. Yeah, you just have to army crawl. You know what? There are lots of modern-day equipment that we use where you have to do that to get into it. So, But that is the CSS Abel Merrill. 
So the battle of, or the capture of Plymouth, not much to go in here, really. This happened after, you know, the Abel Merrill went bye-bye. <laughs> and this is when the Union Naval Forces attacked Plymouth in North Carolina. And pretty much there was three days of fighting. Then the Confederates retreated from the area, which allowed the Union Navy to land and occupy the town. The strength of each side was on the Union side, nine gunboats and a torpedo boat. And on the Confederate side, 3,500 men, 22 artillery pieces, and three shore batteries. The casualties was on the Union size, six killed, nine wounded, and three gunboats damaged. And on the Confederate side were 37 captured, 22 artillery pieces captured, three shore battery captured. Does not sound like they lost any. No. Sounds quick and efficient. Yeah. I mean, it's pretty much it's just bombardment the entire time and until they turned tail and ran. All right. So what we're going to do now is we're going to honor one of our fallen angels as we teamed up with HeroCards.us. So today we are going to honor Jesse L. Brown of the United States Navy. So uh, when did Jesse serve? He served in the Korean War, 1950 to 1953. His hometown was Hattiesburg, Mississippi. He was attached to the Fighter Squadron 32 USS Layette CV-32 Fast Carrier Task Force 77. He received the Distinguished Flying Cross, the Air Medal, and Purple Heart. His date of sacrifice was December 4th, 1950. Killed in action near the Chosen Reservoir, North Korea. He was 24 years old. So a little about him. When Jesse Leroy Brown was born in Hattiesburg, Mississippi, he was born into a sharecropper family. He was a school athlete who excelled at math and dreamed of being a pilot from the time he was a young boy. He left Mississippi to attend Ohio State University in 1944, and his high school principal wrote to him, quote, As the first of our graduates to enter a predominantly white university, you are our hero, end quote. Now, Brown had to work the midnight shift loading boss cards for the Pennsylvania Railroad to earn money for his education. He was able to maintain a high GP. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. He joined the Naval Reserve to help pay for college after he saw a poster recruiting students for a new naval aviation program. And of course, in this racist time, he was discouraged from applying and was told that he would never make it to the cockpit of a Navy aircraft. But as most heroes do, he was, he persisted and he was finally able to take the qualification exams. He wrote to a childhood friend saying that he had made it through five hours of written tests followed by oral tests and rigorous physical exams, making it through each round with flying colors. And he then stated to his friend that 
even though he had excellent performance and he was accepted into the program, he said, quote, I'm not sure the Navy really wants me. He then received orders to select a flight trading in Glenville, Illinois on March 1947, followed by additional training at Naval Air Station Untumwa in Iowa and Naval Air Station Pensacola. On October 21st, 1848, at the age of 22, Brown became the first black man to complete naval flight training. So what kind of plane was he flying? I will get to that. Okay. A public information officer released a photograph and story the next day after he graduated. Quote, first Negro naval aviator. The story was then picked up by the Associated Press and Brown's picture appeared in Life magazine. So Brown is a section leader and flew a Vought 4 F4U TAC 4 Corsair and was assigned to Fighter Squadron VF32 aboard USS Wright CVL49. For anyone who might not know what that is, um that is the plane that was made famous from the show Black Sheep Squadron. His squadron then was transferred to the USS Lyette CV32 in October of 1950 as part of the Fast Carrier Task Force 77 and made its way to Korea to assist United Nations forces. On December 4th, 1950, on the way to Chosen Reservoir with his squadron, Brown announced over the radio, quote, I think I may have been hit. I've lost my oil pressure. He crash-landed his Corsair on the side of a mountain in the... Circling over the crash site in his own Corsair, Brown's wingman, Lieutenant J.G. Thomas J. Hudner Jr., realized something was wrong when Brown didn't emerge from the cockpit of his aircraft. So, Hudner made a decision to crash-land next to Brown's Corsair, risking court-martial and capture by the Chinese, and, of course, his own life by ignoring his commanding officer's directive. Quote, if a plane goes down, that's one down. We don't need Hollywood stuff. Although I believe stuff has been changed here to keep it clean for all audiences. <laughs> Hudner found Brown in pain, bleeding and trapped in his aircraft by a damaged instrument panel with no way to rescue him. A Skiorsky helicopter piloted by Marine First Lieutenant Charles Ward arrived in response to Hudner's radio distress call, but there was nothing that could be done to extradite Brown from the Corsair. Brown asked Hudner to tell his wife, Daisy, how much he loved her before he died in his cock. As daylight dwindled and the possibility of capture grew, you know, increasingly imminent, Hudner and Ward were reluctantly forced to leave Brown's body behind. Unable to safely recover his body, Brown's shipmates instead decided to honor him with a warrior's funeral. And on December 7th, 1950, seven aircraft loaded with napalm and piloted by Ensign Brown's friends made several low passes over his downed Corsair. The top of Brown's head was still visible with snow on his hair when they dropped the napalm on his plane while reciting the Lord's Prayer. Ensign Jesse Brown would posthumously receive the Distinguished Flying Cross the Air Medal, and the Purple Heart. Hudner nervously anticipated a court-martial for defying a direct order and willful destruction of Navy aircraft. Instead, he received the Medal of Honor for exceptionally valiant action and selfless devotion to a shipmate. 
when the USS Jesse L. Brown DE-1089 was launched in 1973, Hudner was in attendance, standing next to Brown's widow. And in 2017, USS Hunter Hudner DDG-116 was christened in Hudner's honor. Ensign Jesse L. Brown, thank you. All right, XO, would you like to close us out? Well, we hope you enjoyed this episode of the U.S. Navy History Podcast. We'd love to hear your thoughts, comments. If you want to leave those, feel free to leave a review. The more stars, the better. If you'd like, we can even read it on the air. We do have a Discord server now. If you'd like to talk with us more directly, you can find a link to that in the show notes. If you'd like to reach out to us via email, you can reach us at usnavyhistorypodcast at gmail.com. And finally, we do have a Twitter handle. It's at usnhistorypod. Yes, I know, I know, this is so many things to remember, but you guys have plenty of options to reach out to us, and we hope you do. Until then, we wish you fair winds and following seas. Goodbye. U.S. Naval History Podcast, departing 2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-